Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily, and today we have the honor of having Dr. Joseph Rella with us. Now, a bit about his beliefs. We begin with the hypothesis that any subject can be taught in some intellectually honest form to any child at any stage of development. Jerome Bruner, 1960. It is in our collective interest to give each child the opportunity fully and honestly to excel at something of consequence that is close to his or her heart, to excel in the sense that his or her imagination and energy is stirred. Theodore Sizer, 2006. The present assessment regime, which ignores the beautiful differences among children, is destructive. Our goal here is to create demanding but flexible assessments where students can demonstrate their understanding and mastery of a subject through a variety of assessments, traditional and performance-based. Research papers, projects, music, art, poetry, dance. Dr. Joseph Rella's role as a leader is similar to an orchestra conductor. She or he cannot play as well as any of the people sitting in front of him or her. They are virtuosi. The conductor's task is to help shape the performance, help them to play as an ensemble. When that occurs, we have beautiful music. Dr. Joseph Rella has been at Kamsawag since January 1994 as a teacher, director of humanities, high school principal, deputy superintendent, and superintendent since 2010. He has been in education for 34 years. He received a BA in philosophy from Cathedral College, an MA from Teachers College Columbia University, and an EDD in Educational Leadership and Policy Studies from Hofstra University. So welcome, Dr. Joseph Rella. How are you? I am very well, thank you. How are you doing? Great. We're so happy to have you on our podcast. And as you know, this podcast takes us on a journey to master leadership. And we want to do that today by asking you key questions. So you ready to pour into our listeners? I am. Oh, great. (laughs) Okay. So can you share with us a bit about your leadership journey? Well, it has not been a straight line. I began my career as a teacher music I taught, I taught Latin, and I taught speech and debate in Brooklyn at Cathedral Prep High School. It was was on the corner of Atlantic and Washington Avenue. From there, I moved out to Long Island. I met my wife, and uh, actually I was married when I got there, but we lived in Brooklyn. We lived Mm -hmm. in uh, Bay Ridge. We moved out to Long Island, and I had gotten a job at St. Killian's School in Farmingdale, and that was a K-8 to school. Children were coming as we were on this journey, and uh, Parochial schools don't pay that well. How many children, actually? Four sons. And now I have four sons and seven grandchildren. Congratulations. Uh, Five girls and two boys, and the girls are a mystery, but that's a whole other story. Left teaching, got a job at what was then the Long Island Lighting Company, reading meters, because unless you were an engineer or an accountant, they did most of that management hiring from within. Well, after a couple of years there, I got hired in the employee relations area in training and education. So I put together supervisory management workshops. My boss from there left. I I got a job at Jamaica Water Supply Company, another utility in human resources. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there for about nine years and was doing really well and very happy. And they got sold to the city and I was out of work. So I was playing piano in in a restaurant and throwing newspapers out the window at 3 o'clock in the morning and... Uh, Whatever my wife, it takes. Anything. You know, you have a lot of mouths to feed. And my wife had gone back to school. She was a respiratory therapist. That's what saved us when I had lost the job. And saw a little ad in Newsday for a piano accompanist for a middle school chorus. I had no idea what a middle school was. And it said four slash five. I said, well, maybe it's fourth and fifth grade. Anyway, I came out for the interview. I had to do a demo lesson. It meant I was four-fifths. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't a full-time position. I took the job and 
That was in January of 1994, and my goal was to become a full-time music teacher. So the path, again, was not in my control. <laughs> Here I am. I'm superintendent of the place now. You plan and God laughs. I, that's exactly right. So it's been a wonderful experience here. I love the community. I love the teachers here uh, and the students. And this is January. I'll be here 23 years. I'm sorry. I think I missed a oh, whole. You... My whole chapter from here. Part-time music teacher, full-time. Then I became director of humanities for a little bit. And then I was deputy principal at the high school for six months. I did eight years as high school principal here. And then four years as deputy superintendent. And this is my seventh year as superintendent. So it, your career really has been here in yeah. Kansawag. Yeah. Count my years in education. It's about 34, 35 years now. Mm -hmm. About 10, 11 years was in business. I always hated the utilities when we played Monopoly, but I wound up working for the electric company and the waterworks. But it uh, certainly gives you a perspective oh yeah, definitely. that's very valuable. I think so. I've been very fortunate to have all of those, including being out of work for a year. It puts a different slant on things, and you bring all of that to the table. The biggest part of my job is not education. It's about people, and my experiences have helped me tremendously in dealing with people. Also, being able to empathize with people when they're in a tough situation. I've been there in many instances. And when you're dealing with employees, I've been on the other side of that. Right. I've been laid off for a year. Right. It was terrifying. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it helps you when you feel a little bit of what they're feeling. That's um, valuable experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So how would you describe your leadership style? Well, I don't often think about it. In thinking about it, I guess it would be a collaborative style. I don't believe in, you know, organizational charts with hierarchies and only you talk to so-and-so. The flatter the organization, I think, the better. Things get done quicker. So my style, sometimes it's disconcerting to people who are used to tell me what to do. A good example, my background is in music. Uh, tonight there's a concert in the city and the New York Philharmonic will be playing. And you have 100 plus musicians sitting there playing. And you have the conductor who's in front of them. And that conductor can't play as well as any of those people sitting in front of him or her. They play better than he does. They're virtuosos. But his job is to make sure they play well together, to blend the sound, to balance the sound, to ask questions. That's the way I see my leadership. I have wonderfully talented teachers here and administrators here, very involved parents. They want a lot from their school, but they're not angry with their schools. They support their schools. And I'm assuming because their school supports them. You know, it's an overused word, but I believe it's a family here. And just like in a family, you laugh together, you yell at each other sometimes, you hug each other, you praise each other, you criticize each other. All those elements that make a healthy family, you'll find them here. I'm comfortable with that kind of a leadership. It can be messy because it's much easier just to, this shall be, bang, I'm the superintendent. But it's much better uh, when we reach consensus together. And we've had some difficult decisions to make here over the years, but we did them together. Everybody wasn't happy, including me. But my leadership style allows for people to really use every bit of their creativity and energy. The limits that we have in education are not our students. It's us. The adults. The adults. It's the limits of our own creativity, the limits of our own commitment. I remember a prior superintendent said something once, and it always stuck in my head. The people of the district send us the best kids that they have. They're not keeping the great ones home. <laughs> so when those children show up here, it's us now. The onus is on us to figure out how to unlock every child's potential, every single child. And I think that there's unity of purpose here. We don't have time for the nonsense. Mm -hmm. You know, you shouldn't be doing that. That's so-and-so's job. It still counts if I didn't think of it. If everybody is the superintendent, in a sense, everybody is invested in the place, I find that wonderful mm -hmm. things happen all the time here. It's a beautiful analogy that you compare it to a conductor, right? And I'm assuming the musicians are the teachers and the music is the kids, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> I love the fact that you foster creativity. <laughs> and that requires that you value those around you. It requires that they feel safe, right? Yeah. All those things. Which mistakes are the quickest form of learning, mm -hmm. especially a big mistake. And they really aren't mistakes. I play piano. Mm -hmm. um, and you're improvising, and you went in a direction that you shouldn't have. You don't stop and say, ooh, that was awful. It becomes the springboard to your next idea. You have to be free to make them. You have to feel free and protected, uh, especially in the environment that we have 
in education today, which is very toxic, which is destructive of creativity, really, which hasn't produced any improvements over the last five, six years, just the opposite. Uh, so we made a decision several years back. I don't watch the program, but one of my colleagues does it's Mad Men. And the fellow in the program says, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. Is that your quote? It could be a good quote. Be. <laughs> it's a good quote. It could be. Um, change the conversation. So we changed the conversation. We weren't having a conversation with the state. It was all one way. You're failing. You're not getting it done for your students. You're lazy. That's horrible leadership, so, by the way. I remember reading one time, even in the worst of circumstances, you can't treat people that way. Slavery was, I would think we would agree, the most horrific system that you could have with human beings. But even there... The slave owner had to be careful because at a point, the slaves would rebel. Even when they had no rights, they were treated as property. So if you wind that up ahead, it's analogous to if I keep telling you you're no good, that you're never going to quite measure up, and then I create a system to prove that you're no good, what they'll do is they'll shut down. But who are the beneficiaries of their shutting down? The students. Who are the beneficiaries of a toxic educational environment? The students. And beneficiary means good result. So I don't know deficiaries or something mm -hmm. that, you know, who's at Who the end of the, the line consequences, here? The right. consequences right. our students do. And that's immoral. Besides everything else, it's unethical and immoral to treat students that way. Treat anybody that way. Oh. Well, you know, teachers have families. Uh, they go home every day. Teachers take everything personally. They're invested in their students. They're invested in what they do. They put their whole heart and soul into it. When you do that, you're vulnerable. So you need to be careful with one another, as we are to our students. We should treat each other that way. It also is the kiss of death for creativity. To be creative, you have to have a freedom. You have to believe that you'll be supported in what you're doing, and then you have to be supported. The system in place now is not meant for that. The system in place now has a very clear object, though, is to so shake confidence in public education that privatization for profit mm. is the solution, and we see it unfolding across the United States. We will comply with the regulations. We have to, because otherwise we'll get killed. Mm -hmm. We'll be penalized. We've already, I'm saying two, three years ago, made some decisions here in terms of the curriculum. So we put together a curriculum council. 100 teachers plus teachers are on it. So Parents the teachers were involved it. in... They have to mm -hmm. be. They created a literacy program, K to 8, it's up to now. They're now in the high school that teachers created. It's magnificent. Have other districts taken that on, or is it just for you? I don't know. Michael Hines from Patchogue right. and I are... Who, who is a fabulous superintendent. 100%. <laughs> He's one of my idols. Huh. But Michael and I talk all the time. I will steal from him shamelessly. Um, he's doing wonderful work. Yeah. Uh, we're close enough that you know the next step in our relationship, district to district, will be to share teachers and share professional development. We're already looking at the whole wellness program that he introduced there and yoga and other things. For Mindfulness. Children. Play, increased play mm -hmm. and so forth. Wonderful. We've had them. The idea was to make them intentional, make them consistent. All of us are unconsciously skilled. We can make good things happen, but we don't really reflect on them. The idea is to become consciously skilled so that you can replicate it, number one, and teach it, share it. And so that's the process. Right out here is the schoolyard, right out the window. This mm -hmm. is kindergarten through second grade, this building. Mm -hmm. And kids go out there and they play every day. And I hear them sometimes. I'll be outside. I'll go wander around the recess uh, time. And you hear kids say, you know, you stink. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. That's the script that was going on with the state. So we changed the conversation. One of the things we made a decision to do was I needed some organization to take a look at our work objectively. And so we applied for Middle States accreditation. It took six months to get approved as a candidate, a two-year process, a big self-study. We had to produce a tremendous amount of evidence that we were meeting the 12 standards that they have, which cover every aspect of a school district's life. And then they sent out a validation team for four days, and you know they, they looked at everything. They looked under the rugs. They were in your cornflakes in the morning. <laughs> they talked to hundreds of people here, parents, students, senior citizens, uh, you name it. And uh, about a month ago, uh, the validation team is recommending full accreditation for all six of our schools for seven years without any stipulations, without any recommendations. That's so what does that mean? It means it validates what we're doing. It, it, it speaks to the quality of the educational program. What it says to our residents is you're investing in your schools. You're getting a good bang for your buck here, good mm -hmm. value for the dollar. To our teachers, it says we were right. Let's continue. Now, this is only the starting point for us. Now we're really going to 
uh, expanded. We've introduced performance-based classes at our high school. There are 27 high schools in New York State who don't take any, re they take one, the English regions. All the rest of the regions are met through project-based, performance-based, inquiry-based assessments, a paper, a project, designing an elegant experiment in science. And they've been doing it since 1994. They have higher percentages of special ed students, English language learners, high poverty students than the averages in the city of New York. And they're graduating kids at a much higher rate. Kids are being accepted to college. But that's a deceptive statistic. Everybody puts out, well, we send 90% of our kids to two and four year colleges. How many are still there year two? How many of them graduate within four or five years? How, yeah, how many are successful? Again, they're off the charts. So we applied to become part of this consortium. It was established by the, the Regents in 95. We were told that they're not accepting any other schools right now. I'm thinking to myself, why? Spoke to uh, our Regent, Regent Tillis, and he certainly supports it, um, our entry into it, but we weren't waiting. So we have two sections now of ninth grade that are doing high school that way. They're going to still have to take the Regents, which is ridiculous because you have two assessments, but we weren't waiting for the state. This is a better way for students. We'll prepare them better for life uh, if they choose to go on to college. The State Education Department keeps talking about college and career ready. What career? I kept asking them. Tell me the careers that this system is getting kids ready for. Silence. We have, I guess, about 40 students now involved at the high school during the school day, and they are learning the course to become nationally certified. It's a national certification exam to become computer technicians. I was going to say coding is big. Not even coding. This is the guys that do the wireless, the mm -hmm. infrastructure, that repair the machines. There are about 6,000 jobs right now on Long Island that are open for computer techs. That's career ready. Right. Walking out of high school into a $40,000 plus job with benefits, that's real career ready. And again, the spectrum of kids involved, all the faces that you see in high school, we've gotten about, I guess over the last two years, about 60, 70 students, primarily from Texas, where they made entry into the country. And these are 16 and 17-year-olds with interrupted educations, some of them illiterate in their native language, which is primarily Spanish, and they have to pass an English regions. It takes about, I don't know, seven plus years to acquire a new language. They might be with us for a year or two, so we created a newcomer curriculum that will prepare them for the GED, that will get them survival English, right. survival math. How do you fill out a job application? How do you open up a bank account? Uh, how do you interview? We have a program called, it's a SIOP program, Sheltered Instruction Operational Protocol. I have no idea what that means. Mm -hmm. In practical terms, it's similar to what we used to do with the inclusion classes in special ed, where you have a subject area teacher, and in this case, an ESL teacher and students then get that extra support. They have intensive English language. But that PSYOP program is preparing kids to get Regents diplomas, and it's been very, very successful. The other thing that it does is it engages the student early so students feel connected to the place. They when, feel valued, when, which is big. Huge. Yeah. They're not just warehoused. Right. Or an inconvenience. Well, that's, that's the other piece. And we have to be careful ourselves. George Wallace stood at the front door of the school in Alabama and said to the black students, you can't come here. Boy, that's in your face bigotry. But there's a soft bigotry. We'll let you in. We'll just have very low expectations for you. We're just not going to really teach you because you're never going to succeed. And that's something that we need to check our own behavior on. You know, back in 1970, I'm an old man. Back in 1970, I read something uh, by Jerome Brunner, and I have it there. Any subject can be taught effectively in some intellectually honest form to any child at any stage of development. So any subject can be taught effectively in some intellectually honest form to any child at any stage of development. Yeah. Jerome Brunner. Brunner. 1970 I read that, and it was like an explosion went off in my head. I was looking at it in terms of music, because um, it was always, you know, well, well, we don't start children on instruments now. We wait till they're six or seven. And Suzuki came along and said, no, we can start them as soon as they can sit up. Now, it's mostly, it was mostly, <laughs> just about, uh, because you acquire language. It's really the native language approach to teaching. The first thing a child does is hear it. The child is loved and praised. Every time they make a sound, a squeak, 
They respond to something. Do the same thing with music, and Suzuki did. And he has three-year-olds playing violin. So I said, gee, why don't they do it for all instruments? Well, you really can't make a quarter-sized trumpet or a quarter-sized tuba, but you can make a quarter-sized violin. But that same notion should apply universally. The child that's sitting in front of you can't speak English, has not had good foundational education, apply that. That child can learn anything, any stage of development, Bruno says. He had a theory with equal spiraling education. You meet the child where they are, and then it gets increasingly more complex. And it spirals upward. Upward. So that expectational set has to be backed up uh, with commitment and action on the part of the school. And being intentional. Intentional. Not that we'll do it. It, it succeeds sometimes. We don't know why. Again, keep that other thing in mind. The people of the district, the parents send us the best students they have. That child that's sitting in front of you may be loaded with deficits in terms of education. That's the best kid that those parents have to send you at that point. Mm -hmm. Or in the case of our kids that are undocumented, that whoever they're living with has to send. And they have to rightly, honestly feel that there's somebody here, one adult in that school cares about me, cares whether I'm here or not. Uh, there was a, a man named Ted Sizer who wrote a lot about secondary education, influential in my own thinking of everything I ever read by him. But what he said was that, especially when you're teaching adolescents, he said, if you don't care for them, you have no business teaching because that's, they can that's, tell. That's true in, in all of education. That's got to be the entry point. And caring means I'm actively concerned about you. I'm going to pursue you like a bloodhound. You can't escape. I'm not going to give up because sometimes adolescents, the, you know, the strategy is, I'll reject you before you reject me. You don't get there. Right. You let them know up front. That's not happening. That's not happening. That's great. Thank so, you for that. Um, can I call you How about Joe? Joe, Joe is good? <laughs> yeah, that's okay, good. That's great. my name. <laughs> so, Joe, can you tell us which quote or quotes about leadership speak to you and why? Yes, you, I can. And I had to kind of think about these because it's, again, not something that I ever really thought about. But there's one that, that sticks in my head Lao Tzu, and he says, it is said of a good leader that when the work is done and the aim fulfilled, the people will say, we did it ourselves. You know who gave me that quote? Dr. Lorna Lewis? Yes. The exact same <laughs> quote. You guys are like-minded. That's wonderful. Because the idea is, again, look at the conductor. He didn't make the music. She didn't make the music. They made the music. They did it themselves. The job of the conductor was to get them to do it together, to iron out the bumps to create an environment where the conversation can take place. But the leader is also a gatekeeper. The leader can decide which conversations will take place and which won't. That's too big a decision for me to make. Mm -hmm. So all conversations are possible then. A great conductor will read and adjust. Absolutely. That's the biggest thing. If there are qualities, leaders have to be in the middle of the work. You can't lead from a distance. Everything looks nice here. Flags waving on the flagpole. It's a blue sky. I have to get into the buildings. I have to walk around. I have to see what people are doing. When I was high school principal, everything looked good for my office. They might not look exactly the same way from the hallway or the cafeteria where kids are. Pope Francis, he was talking about leadership, really. And what he said was that the shepherd has to smell just like the sheep do. He has to be in the middle of the sheep. Mm -hmm. A good shepherd smells just like the sheep because he's involved. He's in the middle of the work. And you got to be open to change and flexible. If you're not going to be, you're not going to be very successful. You can go just so far with edicts. And then, again, there'll be compliance but no commitment. Years ago, they did a survey of clerical workers, and they found that clerical workers could work at about 35% of their potential and not get fired. That's compliance. But imagine if they worked at 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90% of it or 100%. So what gets them there? I think it's a belief that they're valued, number one. If you're missing, we're missing something big here. My favorite leaders, top of my list is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Why? He embodied that idea of I have to be close to the people I'm leading. I have to smell like them. I have to feel like them. I have to eat with them. I, not as a show. And then it wasn't a matter of leading by intimidation. It was inspiring. So people would follow him. People would want to be near him. What he said was, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. So he was never silent about things that he believed mattered. Even in the face of huge pushback, 
huge physical intimidation, Fear. death. People were killed during these things. That's real commitment. That's beyond commitment. That's a person that can, silence means consent, and it does under the law. I see somebody walking behind you with a knife ready to stab you, and I don't cry out. I have consent, or at least I appear to consent, to give consent. Then you can't be silent about things that matter as a leader. Theodore Roosevelt, the best leader, is the one who has sense enough to pick good people to do what he wants done and the self-restraint enough to keep from meddling with them while they're doing it. <laughs> and the third guy is Vince Lombardi. I grew up in Brooklyn. He went to the same high school as I did. And he said, contrary to the opinion of many people, leaders are not born, leaders are made, and they're made by effort and hard work. You've got to be in the middle of the work. And people grow. Leaders grow. Teachers grow. We're all growing. So all the time, to make a never, snapshot and say, well, that wasn't very good. I think that person is not an effective teacher. It's nonsensical. And you have to, we're supposed to be working together to improve the practice, improve teaching. You talk about a snapshot. Isn't that what we do quite often Constant. when we evaluate teachers? Well, a bad evaluation system will do that. Right. What we've done is, and you know, we were all forced to create a new evaluation system. So what we did here was we got a hold of a couple of lawyers from NYSIT, sat them here, and said, write the plan. We want a plan that's going to help us improve practice. We adopted the plan. We're taking from it the things that are worthwhile, the conversations that occur between administrator and teacher. I can't evaluate anybody anymore. Mm -hmm. But in both the administrator's plan and the teacher's plan, I'm the final appeal, me, by myself. And I know teachers were worried about this whole thing when it first came out. This was two, three years ago. So at the, the first day of school, we have a whole meeting of all the teachers, 300 well, plus Understandably, teachers. because things change quite yeah. often in the landscape. So I said to them, all right, we, you're aware that we have an evaluation system in place that we agreed on. And I said, was involved, and I said, wrote the plan, basically. I want to protect you. I said, but now, in the structure of this plan, there's a panel that will hear the first appeal, some teachers and some administrators. If they can't agree, then I'm the final appeal. Now, I said, I'm going to tell you something confidentially. It's just between all 300 of us. I'm granting every appeal because the system itself is based on flawed data and the formula is bad. Mm -hmm. I'm granting every appeal. Do you feel better now? Go teach. That's, I don't want you to be thinking about this. That's so wise. Off the table. Right. Off and the, the table. anxiety is gone and it's... I'm telling you... Mm -hmm. Don't tell anybody. This we won't. Is a secret. We won't. <laughs> this we is won't. a secret. The other piece is, first time the algebra regions were given, the new common core ones, again, about three years ago, 56% of our students passed. That's abominable, except for two sections, about 50 kids, and they were taught by the same teacher. And he teaches outer space math, <laughs> advanced calculus, you know, advanced got a algebra. Mind. Yeah. So I went to him. I know him. We started pretty much the same time together here. And I said, what'd you do? And he said, well, I looked at all the stuff they wanted me to teach. It's just way too much, he said. I just picked out the things I thought were important, and I taught them. So I said, how about that? Every one of you, pick the things that you think are important for a child to know in your subject, and only teach those things. Mm -hmm. Don't teach anything else. Well, you say, well, what about the exam? If you think that anything you do in that classroom is going to influence how a child does on those exams. We have a very good medical insurance here with a mental health option that's terrific, I said. Don't go cheap. Go to the best shrink you can find because you're nuts, I said. <laughs> and the parents now, their response to this crazy stuff, grades three to eight, last year- And you're year, talking about? The, the ELA and math exams, the state tests. 85% of the kids did not take the exam. 80% the year before that, 70-something percent the year before that. And I'm not telling them not to take the exam. But when they ask me, I mean, I've had meetings. We haven't had meetings in two years now. We already have hundreds of opt-outs the first week of school. We put a thing up on the website. It's a parental decision form. But when they ask me, what do you think of the exams? Then I told them. And it's an informed decision. Whatever you decide right. will respect. Again, parents are not going to be intimidated into doing something they don't believe is good for their child. We are not going to support anything that would intimidate parents in any way. It's made for some difficult moments here with the state. Where I grew up, there were guys that were fighters, and there were guys that were talkers. 
They keep telling me what they're going to do to me. They're talkers. They're not fighters. The fighter won't say anything. Next thing, you're going to get a fist in your eye. This is a baseless kind of a threat. It's like the boogeyman. Further, if this was a good program and there was validity to it and it was meant to help students learn, they wouldn't have to threaten people into doing it. You know, I'm not a rule breaker by nature. None of us are. Teachers, by nature, they're, they're always nuts about rules. We base our structure of our classes on it. There yeah. are rules. For teachers to object, for parents to object this way, to the point where they're engaging in civil disobedience. You, then you, someone has to listen. They're someone not listening. They have never listened. I have my own story. I'll tell you this afterwards. Okay. <laughs> um, what's the best advice you've ever received? That's easy. My grandfather, he said to me, always tell the truth. You have less to remember. It's <laughs> good advice. And it's great advice. And it works 100% of the time. Good news or bad news? We don't spin for our family. You don't put a spin on things. Here's what I got. We changed over the structure. We had four elementary schools here, one middle school, one high school, about 38, 3,900 students in total. The state imposed a cap, a property tax cap bonus, without mandate relief. So we have about $6 million of unfunded or underfunded mandates every year that we have to come up with. We decided to pierce the cap. We didn't want to go into a situation where we had a roller coaster. So I guess the cap that year was about 5%. Because it's not a 2% cap. That's another lie, but let's forget about that for a minute. So 5% was the cap. I think our budget proposal was for 6.5%. That meant that we had to get a 60% plurality. A simple majority wasn't going to work. They came up with 60%. Again, growing up where I grew up, they were... You they played, changed the game? You played stickball. <laughs> and depending upon who showed up that day, you made the rules up. All right, we're going to get four outs instead of three outs. Uh, you got to bat lefty if you're a normally a righty. Anything in the street. These are stickball rules. They change constantly. Change. But nevertheless, those were the rules. So I wasn't hearing anything. We put the proposal out there. We had a big meeting. And I, the silence was deafening. So every Sunday, I do a phone call to the community. And I talk with them. And I say, okay, I'm not hearing anything about this. I'm going to send home a little postcard. I need to do a survey. And there are 10,000 cars that went out. We got about close to 3,000 back, which is not a bad return on a survey. 65% said, don't pierce the cap. Next Sunday, I got up and I said, I heard you. I'm pulling it. We're going to have to redo the budget. And there's going to be a meeting on Wednesday night. So this is Sunday. And we have it right here. That was about 100 that. people, 150 mm -hmm. people, maybe if you're packed. Well, by 10 o'clock in the morning, it was clear that we weren't going to be able to fit people in here. So, okay, we're going to do it in the cafeteria here at the elementary school. That holds about 300. By noontime, it became clear that that wasn't going to. A lot of phone calls coming in. So we did it at the high school. High school uh, auditorium holds about 1,100. We had 1,000 people show up. So I said, this is great. It was a regular meeting, but they said, okay, the first item on the agenda is we're going to listen to you. And we started at 7.30, and at 10.30, public comments finished. And it was almost universal that what the comment was is, you can't pull it. You have to let us vote on it. You're taking our vote away from us. Mm. Okay. We put it up. We fell 27 votes short of 60%. Now we had to go back, and we had to reorganize our elementary schools so it would save us a million dollars. So we had four K to five buildings. Now we have two K to two and two three to five. So now we have to have a bunch of meetings to figure out. Because now we had to re-vote on this in June. So now it's June, and we're opening school in September. We have to move Everything had to be moved, you know, libraries changed, desks moved. A simple thing like transportation, which wasn't simple at all, because now we don't own our buses. The same buses that pick up the high school kids first, then the middle school kids go to the elementaries. But now we have to have two elementary runs, one for the K-2 to building and one for the 3-5 to five buildings, which were going to be the early schools, which were going to be the late schools. I got to tell you... <laughs> It was unbelievable. It's never going to work, blah, 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 blah. You had parents that were in a bind now. They have right. a first grader right. and they have a third grader. They got to go to the bus stop early with the third grader and come back later with the first grader and get to work. The world turned upside down. We got through it. First day of school comes, it was a torrential rainstorm. I said, it's over. <laughs> there are going to be kids that are going to wind up in Brooklyn on these buses, I'm telling you. Well, this is the fourth year. Boy, what a wonderful system it is. The deputy superintendent here, Jen Quinn, for a doctoral dissertation, she did the effects of this reorganization. And oh, perfect. It, it was wonderful. You know, some parents still don't care for it because of that double. But the vast majority, oh, it's so much better. It's a different 
atmosphere in a building with just the younger students. We have a pre-K program here, so they're involved with in the K to two. They're in the K to two building, so they'll go right to kindergarten after that. They're seeing where they're going to be. That was a very difficult time. Normally, when a superintendent redistricts, it's the last thing they do before they get fired or killed, <laughs> because it just upsets. Right. I took away the neighborhood school. Mm. for some period of time. If you're a parent up here, your child will start his or her career K-2 here and then go across 347 to the other elementary. Fifth grade, uh, you know, they do all kinds of activities. They go on a trip. Well, now what's going to happen? Well, they're going to do it together. They wind up together in the middle school, but that's the middle school. The parents here were very honest, brutally sometimes. Uh, but you create a space <laughs> where they can be expressive. I said to them, give me the plan. This is my best shot at this. Tell me what else I can do. I'll, I'm listening. A year before we did this mess, that we had to do it because the budget went down, we had proposed this reorganization. I think it's a good thing to do. It's going to save us money. Down the line, it's going to you know, really be a help. So I had a meeting at each of the four elementary schools. There were three, 400 people at each of these meetings. It was right like in the gym, and I'm right in the middle of them. <laughs> They're firing questions. At the end of the meeting, each of the meetings, I said, all right, look, I know this is not scientific and all that. Tell me how you feel now, I said. How many people are really against this? <laughs> Every hand went up. <laughs> so I said, got it. So as I'm leaving the meeting, a lady comes up to me and says, I think you're full of SHIT. Mm. And I said, I may be. I said, but why? She says, you're not listening to us. You're going to go ahead and do what you want to do anyway. And I said, you could be right. I said, I don't think you're right. But time will tell, I said. So after all these meetings, the next school board meeting, I got up and I said, look, we're not doing it. It's very clear you don't want it. We'll have to figure out something else. I didn't realize this lady was sitting there. She came to the meeting. And I didn't remember her even. Not that people tell me I'm full of you-know-what all the time, but I'm, yeah, all right. So I could be. It's possible. My wife would tell me sometimes. <laughs> so I, I've heard those words before. Right. So I'm walking out, and she says, Dr. Weller, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, yeah. So I'm Mrs. So-and-so. I said, good to see you. She said, I want to apologize. I said, for what? And she said, I told you you were full of you-know-what. And I said, oh, yeah. That was you. And she says, you're not. I said, well, I'm pretty happy about that. I said, but again, in a family, you can say things to each other. You're free to say them to each other. It doesn't all of a sudden, well, now you're not my brother anymore. Now you're not my daughter anymore. You said that to me? What the heck am I? Joe, it speaks to what your grandfather said to you and how you live Tell by that in, in integrity, how you honor your word as best you can, and, yeah. and you certainly did. That was a very difficult situation. Now, you said that your leadership style is collaborative. Yeah. What you've experienced really speaks to that. Can you tell us a bit about what it means to have a good team and how do you build one? When you hire people, you get a sense of who they are. It's, again, it's an unreal situation, but that's all you have. You have an interview or two or three, depending upon the position or how many candidates there were to begin with. You have a resume in front of you. The person has the credentials. They're not going to get there if they haven't. But now i got to figure out, what's this person about? So you look at the character. Absolutely. You, you, you know, you have a conversation together. What kind of music do you listen to? What, you know, what do you believe about kids? What do you believe about learning? What are your goals? What are you thinking? I don't care what the answers are. I want them to have some position on it. Who's your favorite group, your music group? <laughs> Somebody will say, yeah, I, I like team. Led Zeppelin. <laughs> okay, why? <laughs> I, w I want them to have something. I, I don't care if they can't name me the name and author of a book. Tell me some stuff that had an influence on you you know, when you were thinking about being a teacher. Um, Those are great questions, by the way. Really, on paper, people are pretty close to each other. You know, you'll see some variations. Understanding that it's a shot in the dark. You know, you're hoping for the best. But then when they get here, I meet with everybody that gets hired here, part-timers, cooks, everybody. Because what I tell every teacher, what I tell every employee is run wild. Into everything you ever wanted to do What's the in your job. I they look at me that. like I'm nuts sometimes, and I believe I am nuts. But I think it's nuts in a good way. If you could envision a school, what if? What if you could have a school? What if you could have a kitchen and do everything you wanted to do for a school in the kitchen? What would it look like? Do those things. This is not a machine here where don't touch it. We got it perfect. Run wild. I tell teachers. That's beautiful. The teachers. Now, some of the teachers were my students. <laughs> you can't tell the students, run wild. <laughs> but I love that. Run wild. What's the worst that's going to happen? you got to adjust. 
I don't think that's a problem. I have a bias for action. Not that you don't plan. You do. But you can spend your life. I know people that are planners to Visionaries. a fault. Right. Go on. Stop and do something. We did these two sections of this performance-based model at the high school. I have open office hours once a week, Tuesday nights. Mm-hmm. Just come on in. There's no appointment. We'll have a cup of coffee. We'll sit down. It means they don't have to leave work. Most of them aren't coming in here to tell me, great job, Joe. They're coming in to say, I got a problem with this. And most of them are really simple things. Have you talked to the principal? I'm afraid of the principal. I said, I'm afraid of him too. What about if we go together? Then we don't have to be afraid. Of and I, when I walk in, I'll say, listen, we're both afraid of you. <laughs> but we got a problem we got to talk to you about. You know, this is so refreshing. <laughs> I have to tell you, it is extremely refreshing. I don't, I, I don't have the time for it. I don't have the energy. Even if I had the time, I don't have the energy to behave that way. This used to be, in here, it was like nobody gets to see the great Oz. Not nobody, not know-how. And I said to myself, I can't behave that way. It's about telling the truth again. I would forget and behave like I know. This is who I am. I'm 65. I'm going to be 66 in January. It took a lot of years to get put this act together. I can make minor changes. But essentially, this is who I am. If that's no good, then fire me. You've got an obligation to. I can't start behaving when I first like royalty you can't be no. for royalty and Joe this is part of the reason why I started this because I was encountering situations where the top guy it was like meeting royalty oh, yeah. I felt like I had to you know bow or kiss a ring and, and that's it, what it was like but that wasn't uncommon it still isn't when I was deputy superintendent my office is right up there I had to make an appointment to come down I couldn't just walk in the secretary's out here after about two, three months, they knew me from as deputy superintendent and everything, but I had to say, look at him. had really, to shift. I'm really sorry. <laughs> I said, I, there's an intercom on that phone. The door's open. Hey, Marianne, want to come in? I'm yelling. I was yelling so much one day, the athletic director wasn't listening to me. It was a simple matter. Mm-hmm. It was homecoming. I got a call from a parent, and they said, you think the middle school cheerleaders could be in the homecoming grade? We had done away with the cheerleaders, mm-hmm. but they wanted to bring them back. He says, yeah, yeah, we got, we'll find the uniforms, put it on them, they'll jump around down the street with the pom-poms, everybody's happy. You can't do that. I, don't, I can't find the uniforms. <laughs> so I'm screaming, screaming at me. I realized it because I was sitting there, but I could see outside, and, and my secretary's on the phone like this with, with one ear. That's the way it is. When I was upstairs, I finally couldn't stay up there anymore. I used to go to the high school all the time. They have a small office there. I'd use that office because mm-hmm. I was too noisy. That's who I am. My wife... Has said to me all the time, Joseph, you know how to behave. She would say to me, and, and I remember that when I go right. into a meeting. When you're pulling together a good team, you're in their lives, you get to know them. 100%. You, yeah. We know like each other. Like a conductor. Yep. We know each other. We know each other's strengths, weaknesses. But you also, they're adults. And they're smart. I get confused when I hear about a petty thing. You can solve a thousand problems for kids solve this problem with each other. I don't need to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it. I, I used to do all the plays, you know, in the school and stuff when I was teaching. I still sit in the pit and I play. And I, I did a play, it was uh, two by two. It was about Noah and the Ark. It was great. The last play Richard Rogers wrote. Mm-hmm. And Noah's walking around. He's really upset because he doesn't know what to do. He's got to build this boat. God, he's 600 years old. So his oldest son, Shem, is 125. And he keeps following Noah around. And he says, Papa, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. He says, what am I going to tell you everything? Are you a baby? You're 125 years old. That's what I say to them. <laughs> Cut it out. The question you can't ask me, and I've lost it. That's the only time I've ever really lost it with administrators. I'll do whatever you want. So don't pull that crap on me. Mm. What do you want to do? I it causes this. us to reflect. It causes people yeah. to, what do you want to, to really think and bring an action plan. I said, don't say team. that to me. Yeah. If you're in a bad spot with this, tell me. I'll be the heavy with the parent, or I'll be the heavy with the state, always. You allow people, you, you don't meddle with them. You don't tinker with what they're doing. i got to tell you, the best things get done around here without me being involved. That's, if I don't see that, there's no hope. Right. There's no hope. And trust is a foundation. Another quote that's always in my head, it still counts if I didn't think of it. It's still okay, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> Wonderful. So tell us about a challenging experience that 
you've had that has shaped your life? Well, the, the biggest one, I was all set at Jamaica. At the time, I was vice president of administration. I was making $117,000 a year, top of the world, Mom. Mm. We were getting ready to buy a house in Nassau County. Bang, being sold to the city, you're out of a job. Just like that. Just like that. I went home that night. My wife was in school. My youngest guy was in kindergarten and first grade. She went to Malloy study respiratory therapy. She had a year to go. She was interning at Mercy Hospital. I come home, and I had a week off. My last day was going to be October 31st, Halloween. I think mm. that's fitting. <laughs> so she says to me, what's the matter? You don't look good. You okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. She looks me right in the face and says, did you lose your job today? We know each other since we're 16. So I said, yeah. Wow. So you wear everything on your face. I can never play cards. So she withdrew from Malloy. She got a full-time job. That's what saved our lives. Then the shift, what do I do now? I hadn't taught in 10, 11 years. I taught in Brooklyn. I taught parochial school. I taught in Farmingdale. I never taught public school. I was playing piano for a voice teacher friend of mine, and I'm reading the paper in between students, this little ad. I couldn't even say Comsorg. I said, what do I got to lose? It says, you need certification. I said, I don't know if I got that. I looked in my file cabinet. I went to teacher's college at night for my master's. I was permanently certified in music, K-12. So I had that. The rest is history. I love what I was doing. And then the superintendent that was here at the time, uh, Dr. Richard Brandy, I got hired like on December 10th. He says, what are you doing during Christmas week? Come in and talk to me. So I came in the middle of the week. I'm having coffee. And he said, do you ever think you can make a bigger contribution outside the classroom than in? I says, what do you mean, like a director of music? <laughs> he says, no, a principal. I said, what the hell do I know about being a principal? I haven't even gotten into a classroom yet. How do I know if I can make a bigger? He says, go talk to some people over at Hofstra. I didn't. Well, I come into the middle school in the morning. I see all the kids outside, buses picking them up, taking them home. Somebody hit the underground electric line. School's closed. So he was there. He says, did you, did you, did you ever get in touch with the person over at Hofstra? I says, no. He says, go today. You're off today. So I figured I'd better. So I called up, I had my resume, business experience. She says, you know, you'd be ideal for this program. She says, here's what you do. Take the first class, and you don't like it, you walk away. If you like it, you register no late fees, no nothing. I said, okay. That's a good deal. I liked it a lot. It was talking to some things that I believed, and I said, yeah, I believe that. And I got hungry to learn more and do more with it, and I had really good teachers and that kind of stuff. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was um, the biggest and can you tell us about one of your greatest successes and how it has shaped your life? I think where we are now, Comstock School District, me being involved here and being part of this uh, place, mm -hmm. I think that I've contributed something to the place. I'm going to retire in a couple of years, God willing. I think I want to leave it better than I found. And I at least didn't want to leave it any worse than I found it. But you plan to retire, but you know how, what happens when you plan, I know. right? So I know. Well, look, i gotta, I got to say something. I also want to leave when I'm having a good time. Right. Also, my wife passed away. This past August. Oh, sorry to hear So that. the whole world has changed, sorry. you know. Um, but at the same time, my grandchildren all live local. My oldest son moved in with me. So I got 11-month-old and an 8-year-old who's actually going to school here. He's Your in third grade. So I got to think. Certainly the whole world changed. Right now it's one foot in front of the other. What you've done here. I think it's been good. Yeah. I think it's good work. You know, there was a guy uh, who, who was the first the principal oboe player for the New York Philharmonic, uh, Joseph Robinson. And he was there for, I don't know. 30, 40 years. And when he retired, what he said was, there were a few good notes, but they're still ringing, he says out there. <laughs> and that's the way I look at this. There were a couple of good notes here. <laughs> so what would you tell a new leader who's discouraged about their working culture or climate? Change it. That's How? what I can do. As a leader, you can decide what the culture's going to be, and then you can really accelerate that happening. And the only way you do it, I believe, is by example. The way you treat people, remember when I was a principal and I had a teacher that was really being unfair with a kid, let's say. I remember saying to the teacher, the kid was coming in late. This teacher was late two or three times a week. Oh. I said, do I slam the door on you when you come in here, when you're late? What do I do to you? Treat the kid the same way. When I start treating you like that, you got my full permission to treat every kid like that. Your example speaks volumes and people watch you. I'm as inconsistent as any other human being. I'm not trying to make believe that I'm, you know, well, I always do the right thing. No, I don't. When I don't, you apologize. Loud. In public. That was Especially a as a leader. That's right. That was a bad idea. I'm taking full responsibility for it. Let's move on. We brought in a student management system. They looked terrific. I was pushing it. So, boy, this is really going to help. had some wonderful features. None of them were true. A year later, we had a change. I got up to the world. Then you got people here. No, no, I was part of that decision, too. No, I was part of that decision, too. But you set the stage for that, and you, it, there's a safety in that. You got it. Yeah. And you take risks, too. Sometimes you My contract, right. not the best. In fact, the teachers' union president said, I got to negotiate your contract from now on. <laughs> 
I was asking people to make sacrifices. So I didn't take a raise for four years. I'd pay more into my insurance than anybody in the district. Not that I made that public, but it became public because my contract's public record. That's very honorable. I can't, I don't want to make more of it than it is. It's just not fair. We all got to pitch in together. Now, I didn't know one of the lowest paid superintendents in Suffolk County, but the board knew. Possibly one of the most effective. And they made noises. I wouldn't take a raise until everybody got a raise first. I mean, the captain of the ship eats last. One of my sons was in the Marines. He was in Iraq for a year. That's a whole other story. He's doing great. Every year they have big, fancy dinner. And at the end of the dinner, they push in a birthday cake. And it's tradition that the oldest Marine there serves the first piece of cake to the youngest. That's been going on since 1775. Those are important symbols, I think. You eat last. You make sure everybody else takes care of first. That's as much my upbringing as anything I've learned. You know, I came from a broken family. My father left when I was 12, blah, 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 blah. Those kind of messages were sent all the time. When I take a sick day, it's like I have a nervous breakdown. My grandfather used to like, you're sick here? Be sick at work. <laughs> or you're sick at school? That's exactly right. Now you're sick. Those kind of pieces of me, for good or for bad, this is what it is. To a new leader, I'd say, no big speech is going to do it. It's those everyday interactions with people. And people will talk to other people. And you'll build a credibility then with people. When I was deputy superintendent, I wanted to go around and I I met with the faculty at each of the elementary schools. And I said, look, you don't know me. I said, talk to the high school teachers about me. All right? They know me. I've been working with them for eight years. Let's start off by trusting each other. But there's a danger to that. The second I am not honest with the public, that glass is broken now. Right. You don't get that back. You have to be brutally consistent about certain things. If you're not, you're going to pay the price. It's much easier sometimes to fudge an answer in public, to spin it. But when they find out you weren't telling the truth. We've seen this. We've you've, seen this. You've lost. You've lost. So, you, never, you don't get it back. It's harder sometimes to get up and say, no, this is what it is. And people will react. Ultimately, you build up, though, a reputation, and then it becomes easier. Because people understand, if he's saying it, and I tell him, this is my best read on this. You hired me to tell you the truth about things. Here's what I'm telling you. We can disagree. We're allowed to. I'm not going to lie to you or sugarcoat it for you. It happens a lot with grades, especially at the elementary school. Everybody's not an A or an A+. Be honest. But every kid has one thing they do well. Build on that. It's as wrong to tell a kid that they passed when they didn't as it is what the state's doing. They failed when they didn't. The test of finagle, they purposely created a system where 70% of the kids are going to fail. Who would do that? Nobody good. In leadership, it's such a great responsibility to have integrity and to be authentic. You got it. And if you're not, learn it. One of the things that's really, and I speak to this a lot, is having coaches and mentors in your life because you don't see yourself. My brother's in the Air Force. He's a priest. He always says, you got to have a wingman. Or a woman. A woman. (laughs) Right. That lead plane, there's somebody on that guy's wing or that girl's wing saying, be careful. Don't go there. Without that, it's a disservice and you also you believe your own press. I got the answers to this. When I say that to myself, I call people in immediately. And I say, here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And that's the other thing. You have to allow the people, your team, to be honest without strings. Because they'll know. And once they start getting quiet with you, you're alone. I'm Italian, first of all, so like, it's hard for me not to yell sometimes. I can see your... But, uh, and I'll <laughs> yell about I'm things. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the Latin blood <laughs> nose. You know, I've gone nose to nose with them. No, you're wrong on this. I'll go away. I'm thinking about what they said. We come back again. You know, I think you're right. I think I was wrong. That process, I only seen good things happen from it. When you let people speak into you. They gotta. Well, let them do it. God forbid they actually do it. So, Joe, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you, and what are you learning now? I think it was Socrates who said it first, you know, that every year I become more aware of what I don't know. The world becomes more complex in my head. The decisions aren't as simple. What am I learning now? Now I'm learning how we're going to move a school system from a paper and pencil industrial revolution model to project-based 21st century. But Socrates did it 2,500 years ago, asking questions, inquiring, the power of inquiry. I remember meeting with a group of kindergarten teachers. We were just talking about, what's next? I said, you got stuff in your closet that you've been hiding for the last 10, 15 years because we've gone away from it? Yeah, pull it out again. We have centers. Kids do learn through play. Run wild. If you could design a school, I mean, that's what we told the teachers in the performance. If you could design a school, what would it look like? 
Oh, wow. What pieces can we take of that right now? That must have been great. Well, I'm meeting with a teacher at 2 o'clock this afternoon. He designed a school. He wants to show oh, me his school. Oh, my goodness. That's awesome. So, I mean, that's exciting. You know, the Middle States thing has been a big boost for the confidence of the people here because it's an outside organization, no axe to grind. We've subjected ourselves to the same standards as Columbia and NYU and Georgetown and you know Penn State, and we came up out of this really well. That's, That's not the end point. That's mm-hmm. the beginning point. Now, we're the only district on Long Island to have done so. I didn't know that. The other thing that I always hear is my mother, who's still alive, and my mother always said, Joe, I don't care what the other kids did. You do the right thing. <laughs> so I, I, I never compare. That's great advice. I, it is. It's good advice in life. Yeah. It's like, well, I should be angry because I didn't think of that first. No, no. Do the right thing. I want to learn from that. Can I steal that? And there are probably three other superintendents, uh, Michael, uh, David Gamberg, who's out in Greenport. Oh, yeah, I'm going to see him next oh, week. And Steve Cohn, who just retired as the superintendent in Shoreham Raver. He's the assistant soup in uh, Sachem right now. And he's coming over for lunch on Thursday. He wants to see the consortium model. We learn from each other. We talk to each other. We respect each other. So when Michael is blazing a path, I'm so happy. Because, first of all, I'm stealing it. And you support each other, which is really <laughs> yeah, you have so to. necessary. Look it. You got two great musicians standing beside each other. Who's better? I don't know. They're both great. Why does one have to be better? He's better at that. That's what. Look at look at how he plays that. And it's celebrating the differences and the so, different perspectives. So. so, Joe, what have you read that our listeners should read and why? T- I thought about this hard. Some of these are from Hofstra, The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. No, I, I read that. Because he talks about how everything's connected. And the biggest chapter I read and reread was on mental models that we carry around these a map of the world, how the world should look in our heads, and we judge everything against that. If it doesn't match my mental model, I don't know if I'm going to move towards it, and you have to learn to. Um, the other was a book by two Hofstra professors, uh, Bob Kotkamp and Karen Osterman, called um, Reflective Practice. In a nutshell, I say a lot of things. That's my espoused theory. That's what I'm telling you I believe. But now you got to look at my behavior, my theory in use. What's the theory I'm actually working out of? So I remember a principal uh, years back who would talk about civility and respect, and that was the espousal. And he was the nastiest, most cutting person to students, to parents, and to teachers, and the kids saw it immediately. So you have to do some reflecting. Does my behavior match what I'm saying, I believe? Those two were seminal works. Anything by Ted Sizer. The first book I read by him was Horace's Compromise, where he followed a high school kid around, basically showed us the world through that kid's eyes. I just read a book called The More Beautiful Question. We had the author in, Warren Berger, and just talks about, I've been applying it. Why, what if, how. And why is at the top. Right. You start with why are we doing it that way? What if we did it this way? How do we get that accomplished? Because it's not just questioning for its own sake. He had a great formula. Questioning plus action equals innovation. Questioning minus action is philosophy. We think about things, we ponder them, but I'm not looking to change them. That's a good book. The other one was a book I read a couple of summers ago. It's called Leading with Kindness. It's leadership based on sincerity and honesty and respect. And I saw a lot of things that I had been doing and things that I wanted to do. Who was the author of that? William Baker and Michael O'Malley. That was a wonderful book. In fact, we had driven down, my wife and I, to see her mom in um, North Carolina, and she read it out loud all the way down, and then we would stop at different spots and talk about it, and all the way back up. That was our books on tape was her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. I may try that. It's cool. (laughs) Because then we stopped. She said, hey, that's, you know what? And then I'd hear her perspective on things. There was a motto for her. It was what if. She would always ask that. What if? And I'd say, boy, I said, you're the queen of what if. Do you know that? And she said, of course I do. Oh, so... Tell us what you do on a daily basis to set your mind for the responsibilities that you have. Well, I think about, like today I thought about this a little bit, and I started to get some ideas together. I do that. Like I I try to think about what's going to happen today. Do I need to get ready for any of it? And then what I always say to myself as I'm walking in the door was today's a clean slate. You know, whatever I did yesterday is gone. Let me approach things with an open mind. Regularly I say that. Because you got to reset. Some days work out better than others. I will say this, and I don't mean this in a Pollyanna kind of a way. I've never really had a bad day here, meaning I haven't had a day where I didn't feel energized by what was going on. I mean, there have been bad things that have happened, and you got to deal with them. But I've always come away at the end of the day happy I'm here. I'm glad I'm working in that place. It really speaks to your why. Yeah, it does. I learn something every day. We have a group of students who are brand new 
here. They're non-English speaking, undocumented kids. Mm -hmm. And they're in a class at the middle school trying to get them ready. They didn't speak any English when they got here. But what they've done since my wife passed, they created a garden called Jackie's Garden. Well, these little ones, they planted things and, and they tend the garden and they wanted me to see it. So I went with them. First of all, they were speaking to me in English. And then they wrote me some beautiful thank you notes in English for coming to see them. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Dear Dr. Rella, I'm so excited because you were so happy when you saw us. I hope that you always remember that moment. I felt excited because I got to meet you. We have a lot of fun making Jackie's Garden. We have a lot of fun watering the plants in Jackie's Garden. We support you and care. Love, Jeremy. So you get whatever's going on. Right. At least once a day I'm in some building with kids. I am sorry that Jackie went to heaven. She loves you so much and lives in our garden. Thank you. Keep smiling. We all love you. So it puts everything in perspective. So when I feel terrible about something, and it doesn't happen often. It's happening more frequently now because of what happened. But they pull you out of it. They force you to see the world through their eyes. Plus, they're learning. They feel so connected to that school. They're the most important people in that school right now. That day, the whole cafeteria, because they grew some kale in there, which I hate. But they made some smoothies, but they added blueberries and strawberries, and they gave it to me. But they wow. gave it to all the kids in the cafeteria. Each had a little. They were the most important kids in that school. Did you ever and think about the legacy that you're leaving? No, the way I look at it, there's got to be somebody now who's going to make it better. If there's a legacy I'm happy about, as long as we focus on the children and focus only on the children. There's a, a story I heard from a professor at Post, Arnie Dodge, and he did work in East Africa with mm -hmm. education. The Maasai people of East Africa, they're semi-nomadic. They're involved in trade and other things, but they raise cattle, all very tall and thin. When they go to another village, they greet each other with, and how are the children? Are all of them well? Not how's your stock portfolio? Not how's the bank account? How are the children? Are all of them well? And if what comes back is, yes, all the children are well, then they know that village is in good shape. And even people without children ask the question and answer the question because that's the barometer for whether their society is doing all right. Imagine starting a press conference yes. off with all that's of our leaders and saying, and how are the children? How are, the children? are all of them well? Not some. Are all of them well? And if the answer doesn't come back, yes, all of them, then you got to work. But that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Most leaders crash and burn in this question. Many educational leaders put in long hours. Any advice about maintaining balance? There's no such thing as balance, at least for me. It's like saying you're doing too much of that. Stop doing what you love to do something to balance your life. You have so many hours in a day. Right. Sometimes you spend too much of your day doing one thing. Stop. Do something else. It's just that simple. You know, you have a family. You're going to spend time with them. Not as much as you want sometimes. I've tried different methods, you know, mm -hmm. paper and pencil, schedule. I need to block out time. Most of the wonderful things that have happened in my life have happened serendipitously. It wasn't planned. I couldn't have planned it. Spend time with the people that you love. And be intentional. And be intentional. Spend time with, the, with your work. I'm a horror for schedules. That's why people on the team are good at that. I'm not good at that. I know I'm not. I'm going to be playing piano for eight all-state auditions this year. So I do it every year. Because otherwise the kids have to hire somebody and it costs about three, $400. And they only get one or two rehearsals. So I, I start meeting with them now. Nisma is in March. How much time am I going to spend on it? All the time I need. I'm going to be the music director for the play this year. Because the music teacher just had a new baby and he can't give that much time. I have more time now. So, you know, it's, it's like, how can you do that? I don't know. Well, you're happy. Th things will get done. <laughs> they have to get done. If you look at the job as a series of tasks that I have to perform, I can't. Also, I got to force myself, and I'm a horror at this as well, to try to live in the present moment as much as I can. That's key. Yeah, really is. Enjoy the moment. If there's a regret that I have, the life regret is not valuing that present moment. Look, either looking ahead or looking back. Oh, I wish it were. Oh, I missed that opportunity. Those are bad spots for me. The mm -hmm. past and the future, because I can get lost in the future. But I think that's humanity. That's what we yeah. tend to do. Yeah. And so it, it, that's why I think coaches and people who speak into your life are so important. Yeah. Because they help you remember, hey. Now, I'm now. here. You're living in yeah, this present I'm here. moment. <laughs> I can change now. What I do now might change the future. I can't change the second of the past. I wish I could. Everybody has a different way of creating balance. For some people, it's exercise. For some people, it's the arts. For some people, it's a combination of things. It's family. But if you're going to program me in to a schedule, well, now this next hour is family time. 
And now this next hour, you must go read. I'm done. I'm done. I know me. We I, can't fit that kid. triangle into a <laughs> no, square. No, this is it. Just won't happen. And my wife over the years learned that. She would never, you know, so what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. There was a moment. We were on the boardwalk in Rehoboth Beach. We were driving back up from North Carolina, and we had gone to Rehoboth Beach many, many years before. They had great French fries at this one place, oh. Thrash's French fries. And we parked the car. So we're walking next to each other. And there were a lot of people. It was in the summer. And I said, oh, yeah, the Thrashes is right over there. And I went, oh, wait a second. And I turned around. I said, what about if we go to this place? We're closer to this place first. Oh, and I come back a third time. And I said, and she was right with me each time. And I said, I'm really sorry. And she said, I'm just trying to be agreeable. <laughs> she would follow me and not get mad. But that took years because, you know, she knows the personality that I am. I also, when I have a problem, I start to talk. I have to hear it. I process everything out here. Later on, I'll bring it inside. But initially, it's like I'm restating the problem. And she used to take what I was saying as the end. And the next day, I'd say, you know what? I think, we should, I think we're going to do this. Joseph, you just told me yesterday. And I said, don't listen to me when I first start talking. It sounds like my husband and I. Didn't you say? Yet you learn that. For everybody, it's different. Mm -hmm. There are people who are good at schedules and living by them. To a certain extent, yeah, my life is scheduled. I, I show up at work at a certain time and I have a meeting. I don't mean that. But if you're going to program a day in for me, even when we went on vacation together, we would write down places we wanted to see. And, and it was an outline. It and it was an plan. outline. And then it was like, you want to go there? Yeah, it looks like a nice day to do it. Let's go. Or no, you know, it's, it looks overcast. That's probably better sunny. How about we do this today? So it was that kind of, it's a mushy schedule. However, if I made a dinner reservation, I was always on time for eating. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, that's the paradox. <laughs> so last question. If you can go back in time... What advice would you give the younger you about leadership? Read more. Learn more. I learned a lot, but it was more in the second career, third career, really, which is here. Mm -hmm. Be a better student when I was younger. Um, I wasted time. I think I would have been better prepared. But really, the overriding theme for me was don't waste time. You live know, in that present moment. That speaks live to in what, present you, moment. what you're talking I wasn't, about. You know, right? I, I would always be hopping around, looking and planning that out. You know, five years from now, I'll do this there. And she'd look at me like I was nuts and say, yes, absolutely, Joseph. So, Joe, I just want to thank you so much for adding value, not just to me, but to our listeners. Oh, thanks. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for being here. Enjoy talking to you. Same here. Hello, leaders. Don't forget to go to masterleadership.org to find out how to get a free coaching session from one of the exceptional leaders that are featured on this podcast. Until next time, bye.